Well, welcome to uh, Plum Creek Chapel. I'm uh, excited to continue our study of uh, Acts chapter 2, and I've spent obviously a lot of time kind of diving into this text over the last few weeks and in preparation for these messages, and I think I've kind of got it mapped out uh, how many uh, characteristics of the model church that I'd like uh, to focus on. You know, so far we've looked at uh, six or so, and um, but, you know, the problem is it's been 2,000 years since the uh, Jerusalem Chapel, if we want to call it that, uh, started. And here we are 2,000 years later with the Plum Creek Chapel. And uh, it, it's a lot of ground to cover in figuring out how well we are modeling the church the way the New Testament describes it and the way it was originally established. So uh, for a while there, as I was kind of dissecting all of this, I thought it may take us 2,000 years to get through it all. But it's not going to take that long. Uh, but we are going to camp out here for a few more weeks um, and really focus on some characteristics of the model church. And the reason we're doing this is that we're trying to make sure that our vision as a church emanates from the timeless truth of Scripture and the timeless mission that God, the creator of the universe through his son Jesus, gave the church. I know time and distance sometimes makes us forget things. Uh, but we are part of a plan of God. We're part of God's divine uh, institute, the church, uh, the church global, the church uh, worldwide. And to the extent that we are modeling what we do after Scripture, then we are fulfilling that mission. Our vision is something a little more narrow, as we've said, that is local, situational. It applies only to our church, and it, it allows us to accomplish the mission uh, in ways that other churches can't. In other words, what's unique about Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, I'm sure Sergio would tell you that the church in Rye is a little different than this church. We have the same mission, the Great Commission, uh, but we, we have a different vision, and that's true of every church. Uh, and so what, is, what are the unique ways that we here at Plum Creek Chapel can advance the grace message, see people come to faith, see them grow up into spiritual maturity if they're a believer, and accomplish... Uh, our Lord's command. So that's really what we've been talking about. We said, why is vision so important? Well, because as Paul said, if the trumpet makes an uncertain sound, who will prepare for battle? Now he's using that metaphor in a different context, but it's still a great metaphor for vision. Um, you know, a lot of churches are kind of like a wheel spinning off its axis. People show up every Sunday, they sing, they pray, they fellowship, they generally speaking have a good message that may or may not be tied to the Bible these days with a lot of churches. But anyway, they think they have done church, so to speak. But the, the reality is, if you were to ask that person, how is your church, ABC Church, fulfilling the biblical mandate of the Great Commission, specifically, they would probably struggle to have a, a quick answer. And so what we're working on for the next few weeks and months is how we as a church, as we look forward to our 20-year anniversary, can recast, clearly define, and hopefully catch a vision for how we can do what the Lord wants us to do. So that if someone asks you, hey, tell me about Plum Creek Chapel, you don't have to have that awkward pause and mutter and search for things and, and say sort of the you know, ambiguous, well, you know, we love Jesus, or we're nice, or, you know, our pastor's really good looking. You know, we don't have to say those things. We can, we can actually pinpoint, right? You know, here's, what, here's how God is using Plum Creek Chapel. Here's what we're doing. 
And uh, so I'm really excited about um, what uh, is coming down the pike, and it's still uh, a vision that's a work in progress, and we need to hear from you, and we're going to put it, pinpoint it, but we're going we're gonna to make it very quantifiable and uh, very clear. We said Proverbs reminds us where there's no vision, the people are unrestrained. And the context there in uh, ancient uh, Hebrew, with the Hebrew people, he was talking about a clear proclamation of God's word, a prophetic utterance. But uh, in the same sense today, if we're not clearly proclaiming what God wants us to do as a church through the lens of Scripture, then people are going to be confused and unrestrained. So in recent weeks, I've been sprinkling in a few quotes from uh, human authors uh, outside of the Bible uh, that uh, had some things to say about vision that I picked up uh, through the years uh, having taught uh, visionarying and leadership in different contexts. Um, but here's one. He said, a vision is powerful because it speaks directly to the heart, to unconscious yearnings to be great, to serve, to make a difference, to be involved in something meaningful, to pursue a dream, to achieve a higher purpose. A vision bypasses the rational ego to connect with deeper, subtle potentials. Now, there's a lot in that, but essentially, it just reminds us that a vision is something that it, the result of a clear vision is, is difficult to really put in, in words, but you, you know it when you see it. You know it when you see those churches that are fired up and excited and packed out like we are today. And... People are coming, and they can't wait to be here. They don't want to miss. They know something exciting is, is happening. And we've got some, some great plans uh, coming down the pike this year, like we did last year, with some special events and some opportunities to get involved in the community and to host some conferences and uh, to reach out to those uh, around us. And I think that's what it's talking about there. It's not about just uh, legalistic uh, routine, you know, of Sunday, so i got to come to church. But it's this enthusiasm that says, man, I'm a part of something. And uh, we want to help define what that is, and hopefully uh, you can help us uh, do that. Uh, this vision expert says, without a compelling vision, there will be a vacuum in which almost nothing is happening, but in which almost every problem becomes exaggerated. I think that's true. Uh, when, when you all are following a clear, compelling vision, the little things just don't seem to matter much anymore, you know? And having been in ministry many years and been, been a part of different churches and organizations, I've seen the, big, the little things become big things. And it's not pretty. It's not fun. And um, so why is vision important? I thought I would use these uh, visual optical illusions here to kind of illustrate the problem when you don't have a clear vision. And people are looking at your church and seeing different things. They have different expectations or you know, they, they, they are all on the same page. Maybe you've seen uh, some of these before. For instance, is this a rabbit or a duck? I'll give you a second to look at that. I gave you a little hint here. How many of you see the rabbit? Wow, not everybody. How many of you see the duck? So the duck appears to be more prominent. Uh, but you look a little closer, you can see the rabbit. The rabbit's eye is the same eye, but the duck's bills become the ears. And then the rabbit's nose is the back of the duck's head. What about this one? Is this a woman's silhouette? Or Bill Clinton playing the sax? I mean, a, a man playing the saxophone? You see both? 
Now this next one really gives me a headache. Are these lines parallel or do they slope, the horizontal lines? I actually had to get out a ruler and, but yeah, they're parallel. It's an optical illusion. It makes, it makes, it seems like they're kind of going like that, but if you look close, they're actually parallel. But don't look too close because it'll give you a headache. And then, uh, how many legs does this elephant have? I mean, I come up with a different number every time I count them. I've never seen a five-legged five elephant, but I, I think there's five legs there, but I, it's really hard to, uh, uh, to figure it out. But see, the problem is when, when you don't know what your vision is, then you've got 100 people all looking at the same church, but they see something different. And therefore, when a decision is made or when we're headed in a certain direction, you know, when 70% of the people are excited and fired up about it and really motivated, the rest of the people are kind of scratching their head going, huh? So uh, that's the reason that, you know, we have to have a vision that flows from our mission and that is uh, clear. At our brief meeting after the service today, we're going to talk about at least one priority that we're going to make a part of our vision, and that is missions. And uh, missions has been kind of an ancillary part of our of our church for 20 years. Obviously, uh, in, in the heart of uh, our founding pastor, missions and evangelism were important, and that's the reason the church was planted here. But I think we're at a stage now in the life cycle of a church that we need to be more intentional about thinking about how we can reach beyond just our weekly assembly and really help spread the gospel to our Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. We've done some of that. We've done some international missions in Russia, or Ukraine, I think it is, and Peru. We've done some local missions. Um, but we want to just make sure we all know it. If I were to ask you, what missions does Plum Creek Chapel support? My guess would be there's quite a few people here, especially because we have so many people that have come in the last year, that couldn't name those missions. Honestly, until about two months ago when we started looking into it, I couldn't have named them, and I'm the pastor. So that's not a criticism, that's just an observation. And so we want to be able to know and understand what missions uh, we support as a church, and we want to add to that and make missions a priority. And as I said in the prayer time, God blesses churches that uh, emphasize missions. And, uh, because that is ultimately why we're here. So we're taking a look at the model church. It's our third week in this section of Acts. We're going to be here a little while longer, but uh, in the past we have looked at uh, these four. I guess we've only looked at four. There's two more today, which will bring us to six by the end of today. Uh, we talked about baptism as a core uh, element of the local church, the idea of community, uh, that we're here for each other. The idea of doctrine. Last week we talked about how important uh, doctrine uh, is, and that kind of gave rise to some further study and writing about doctrine that I did uh, this week. And I mentioned during the Bible study hour, uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you to read my article uh, that was on Harbinger's Daily called Doctrine is Dead. Um, and, uh, and then we talked about fellowship last week and just the camaraderie and joy of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. Steve, i got to tell you a funny story. I was out at a restaurant Friday night with the family, and they had a sports on, on the screen, and they were showing the uh, Rams 49ers game from the last game of the season. 
and it was I just glanced up and it was 17 nothing Rams and for some reason I lost my mind because I really don't care about football anymore ever since the Cowboys got up <laughs> except I care about the 49ers but anyway I saw that and I'm thinking oh yeah the NFC championships today and then I thought oh man poor Steve the Rams are killing them and then I I thought that for several minutes, and in the middle of the meal, I start thinking, wait a minute, it's Friday. The game's not on yet, and so then I, oh, it must be showing a replay. But anyway, today's the day, so I hope I get to rejoice with you when you rejoice later on today when the 49ers uh, beat up all over the Rams today. And maybe they'll play Cincinnati in the Super Bowl. It'll be the third time they've met in the Super Bowl. Wouldn't that be something? So, But that's what fellowship is about, rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. But this morning, I want to look at two more from this passage in Acts chapter 2, characteristics of the model church. And the next one is the Lord's Supper, or often called communion. And this is a unique uh, command of the Lord that is something unique to the New Testament church. Unlike baptism, which as a cultural rite had been around for millennia, it predates Christianity by 2,000 years and a lot of different religions uh, used baptism with different meanings. Uh, remember we talked about how in the first century even there was John the Baptist baptism, uh, Paul talks about Holy Spirit baptism, uh, then there's Christian water baptism. In the Old Testament you had Moses baptism, proselyte baptism, but, but Lord's Supper was not like that. It's something that was unique. It was established in the upper room the very night Jesus was betrayed, and he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me until I come. And so the Lord's Supper looks both back at the atoning work of Christ on the cross. What do we mean by atoning? Meaning that Christ was our substitute on the cross. That it should have been you, it should have been me on the cross paying the penalty for our sins. But Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, took our place on the cross, paid our sin debt so we don't have to pay it. And then he offers freely to all the gift of eternal life and, and, and the payment on our behalf if we'll simply receive it. Now, it's not forced upon us. Uh, you know, forced love is no love at all, but it's made available. It's universally offered. Uh, Whosoever will may come drink of the water of life freely, the Bible says. And that's the atoning work of Christ, that he paid our price when he shed his blood. And the Lord's Supper looks back to that. Remember, uh, Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, and this Bread represents my body, which was broken and beaten for you. But it also, never forget, looks forward because it's unique to this present church age. And he says, do it until I return. Now, we've been talking about the return of Christ quite a bit in our uh, 9 o'clock hour the last couple of weeks. And when Christ comes back to inaugurate the, long, the long-awaited kingdom on earth, we won't have to celebrate the Lord's Supper in the kingdom anymore. Because we'll be looking right at Jesus as he rules and reigns from the throne in the rebuilt temple, as he gives the state of the world address every you know, January from Fox News or whatever, uh, and we'll know him. In fact, the Bible says the whole world will know of Jesus, from the least to the greatest. So there's no reason to go through this ceremony looking back and anticipating his return when he's already back. So the Lord's Supper is a very unique, special thing uh, for uh, the Christian church. Um, I'm going to look at our text in a moment and kind of show you where this comes into play with the church, but just a few more general comments about the Lord's Supper. Throughout 2,000 years of church history, uh, this uh, ordinance, we call it, has taken on 
both different modes and methods, but it's also, unfortunately, taken on different meanings, some false meanings. And some religions and denominations throughout 2,000 years of church history have tried to make communion, the Lord's Supper, uh, salvific, meaning that it imparts salvation, that if you don't take communion, then you're not saved, and you get to heaven because you take communion. The Bible never says that at all. In fact, the testimony of Scripture could not be more clear that salvation is only gained by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Every individual human being comes to eternal salvation the same way, by trusting in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. But the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is one of those things that is symbolic, it's a reminder, it's an important thing that we do, but it's not something that gets you into nor will keep you out of a hell. Uh, for those who understand that and, and, and correctly practice communion or the Lord's Supper, sometimes it's called, uh, simply in a biblical way, there are several different modes. You know, some people in their church do it every week. I was a part of a church once. I wasn't the pastor, but uh, when I was uh, doing not by works full time and, and, and just had a home church that we participated in, they had the Lord's Supper every service. And that's fine. The Bible doesn't tell us how often to do it, only to do it until Jesus comes. Uh, some churches do it once a quarter. Some churches do it uh, uh, once a month. Here at Plum Creek, we have a tradition of holding a Lord's Supper service on, uh, what is it, the third Sunday, Suzanne, of every, of every month, right? Unless it's providentially hindered or something like that. Uh, when 20 of our 20 plus of our people got COVID in December, we thought it best to not be passing bread to each other. So we, we didn't have it in December. But uh, generally speaking, we have it once a month. Uh, and all of that is fine. The important thing is not so much how often you do it, but that the local church does it because it's part of the model church. And not only is it modeled for us in Acts chapter 2, but the New Testament epistles go on to tell us in 1 Corinthians, for example, that we should continue uh, to do this. So if we look at our text, it tells us that, again, let's put this in context. So Jesus Christ ascended in Acts chapter 1 to the right hand of the throne of God. The disciples go back to Jerusalem. They have a prayer meeting. They find someone to replace Judas so that they have 12 disciples because they thought Christ was going to come back immediately and they didn't want the 12th throne to be empty. Then they go on the day of Pentecost, uh, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit comes as promised and as Jesus said he would. Uh, the church is born, 3,000 people are saved after Peter's incredible evangelistic message reminding them that Christ Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead. And then at the end of Acts chapter 2, Luke tells us that here's what the church in Jerusalem looked like. So he's describing uh, the church that now we fast forward 2,000 years that we are hoping to model today, or at least the core uh, principles of it. It may look different. We may not wear sandals and meet on top of a roof like they did, uh, but and I don't think they live-streamed and had a thousand technological things in front of them, but, but still the core elements, the core principles are what we are wanting uh, to model. So here we read that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. That's what we looked at last week. But notice, in the breaking of bread... This phrase, breaking of bread, refers to communion, to the Lord's Supper. And it seems, at least from the descriptions and acts, that the church early on did this every time they came together. And um, that's understandable, because remember, they had walked with Christ. They had talked with Christ, and he had told them, 
Peter was right there sitting beside him when he said, do this until I come. So they thought, man, every time we come, it's got to be central. And frankly, I don't think that's a bad idea. I think that the, the real meaning of the Lord's Supper about Christ's atoning sacrifice at Calvary and his return, which most churches that celebrate the Lord's Supper forget that part. They don't really even teach about his return. But those two elements being part of the Lord's Supper, I think it's great to do it every Sunday. Um, and so this is what breaking the bread uh, means. Let me give you a few other examples where breaking bread in the New Testament refers to the Lord's Supper. Uh, obviously in the upper room, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. Right? So that's where the concept comes from. And he gave them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 1 Corinthians 10. Remember the church in Corinth was having problems surrounding the Lord's Supper. And uh, there were all kinds of mixed motives and conflicts centered on it. And Paul says, the cup of blessing which we bless, it is, it is, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Again, referring to uh, the Lord's Supper. And then at the end of Acts chapter 2, we see them, this is where we get the idea that it's, at least in practice, was something that happened every time they got together. They continued daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Now, as, a, as an American Western church, evangelical, conservative, Bible-believing church, most churches, they get the part about eating. You know, they, they love the potlucks and the eating regularly and even meeting in people's homes and eating. But I don't think we really remember as much the element of the Lord's Supper, that aspect of, of breaking of bread. And so uh, one of the unique things at Plum Creek Chapel uh, that I love is that when we do it once a month, we share the, the, the presiding of it or the leadership of it amongst our uh, leaders. And so I'll lead one month, Gary will lead, Fred will lead, Jeff will lead, that kind of thing. And so that adds a, keeps it from getting routine. You know, if I led the Lord's Supper every time, I be honest, I'm human, I'm always not plugged in to the Spirit as I might should be, and it just becomes sort of routine right but i get to participate like you in the lord's supper you know uh, three out of every four months and then i get to lead it and so i think that adds some freshness to it but i hope and i know the leadership uh, echoes my sentiments here that every time we come together around the lord's table that it is a serious uh, reflective time of remembering what christ did for us and what uh, the fact that he's uh, coming back um, you know, so for 20 centuries now, all throughout the world, by the way, this isn't just an American church thing, in obedience to the command of the Savior, they've remembered the death of our Lord through this strange custom. And think about when it first was instituted in the upper room, how strange, for lack of a better word, it must have been, right? I mean, at least baptism had some historical context, but, I mean... Here they're instituting something entirely new. Uh, but I wonder if this strange custom that was strange 2,000 years ago is still strange. Um, I mean, in our zeal to obey the instruction of our Lord, I wonder if we've ritualized it and traditionalized it so much that it's kind of lost its, its meaning. Um, and 
you know, some churches uh, are so concerned. I've, I've seen a lot in 32 years of ministry, and I'm sad to say someday I'm going to write a book when I finish with my list of current books that I'm trying to finish uh, on all the different conflicts that I've seen in churches and reasons people have left the church. And I think I've mentioned before that we once had a couple leave a church because the communion bread was too crunchy. I'm not kidding. And so, uh, you know, when, you, when it gets to that point, you have to say, uh, you've, missed, you've missed it. You've lost sight of what it's about. Um, and some churches, you know, they obsess over, does it have to be unleavened bread? Is it, you know, could it be what? Look, I'm here to tell you, it's not about that. If the Lord Jesus in God's divine plan of the ages had come at his first advent today, instead of 2,000 years ago, we might be celebrating the Lord's Supper with pizza and Pepsi. I'm not kidding. It's not about the elements. It's about the meaning. And in his day, in that upper room, as they were celebrating Passover, they had bread on the table, they had wine, which is what they drank. And he just said, hey guys, I want you to know my body's about to be broken. Just as I'm breaking this bread. And, you know, see this wine here? That's kind of like my blood, which is about to be shed for you. And I want you to remember that every time you come together and celebrate this memorial service until I come. So let's remember what it's about. I think the Lord's Supper binds us around two central uh, themes, if you will. And the, the first is punishment. Uh, punishment. It, it, that, that when Christ died, just hours after he instituted the Lord's Supper, he was satisfying God's wrath against sin. You know, all the way back in the garden, God had said, if you sin, you're going to die. There's a punishment for it. Paul later on would explain it doctrinally by saying the wages of sin is death. And so what Jesus was about to do was to take on a punishment like Isaiah 53 predicted. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace with God, reconciliation, was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. That's not talking about physical healing. It's true that God also heals physically. He's in the healing business. And we've all got stories, I'm sure, that can testify to that. But here he's talking about our spiritual predicament. And that the death of Christ, his shed blood, was paid our sin debt. And he received our punishment. Now, you want to know what that punishment was like? In John chapter 19, a Pilate issued the official order sentencing Jesus to death by crucifixion, a Roman means of capital punishment. And he, he tried to play on the pity of the crowd. Uh, remember, according to, to Jewish custom, one prisoner could be released from prison at Passover and set free. So Pilate wanted Jesus released, but of course the crowd demanded Barabbas. So Pilate had another plan for trying to get Jesus released. And it was as brutal as it was simple. Pilate would have Jesus beaten so badly that the hostile Jewish crowd would take pity on him and allow him to be released. It's called a Roman scourging. Of course, Pilate's plan didn't work. But the Roman scourging of Jesus was gruesome and torturous. The soldiers took Jesus back into the palace, removed his clothes, tied him to a post, and then they... They beat him with a whip like this one. It's called a cat of nine tails. 
consisted of nine straps of leather with a ball of leather at the end of each strap. Stuck in the balls of leather were bits of bone and iron and a chain to make the whip heavier and sharp. Often a person receiving a Roman scourging died from it. The Bible tells us that Jesus was beaten beyond recognition. After the beating, the Roman soldiers humiliated the bleeding and wounded Jesus even more. Someone found some thorns and wove them into a crude crown. They thrust it on Jesus' head. Another person located a soldier's cape and put it on Jesus' shoulders. The soldiers knelt down one by one and mocked Jesus by calling out, Hail, King of the Jews. Finally, they hit Jesus continually with their fists and spat on him and hit him with a stick. And that suffering of our Savior was just the beginning. In a matter of hours, Jesus would face the most torture-filled death in human history. This uh, crucifixion. It was a Roman custom to make the prisoner carry his own cross to the site of the crucifixion. And Jesus was led through the crowded streets of Jerusalem down the Via Dolorosa carrying his heavy cross. Physically, he was in no shape to do it. And so it wasn't long before he collapsed under its weight and a man from the crowd was commanded to carry it for Jesus. There was nothing pretty about Jesus' crucifixion. The cross was first laid on the ground and Jesus was then stripped of his clothing again and laid on top of the cross. His hands were nailed to the cross first. The soldiers would find the spot on each of Jesus' wrists where two bones come together so that the nail would have something to hang on to or rest on. They were careful not to pound the nail into his pulse. They drove the spikes through his wrists and into the, to the wood. The nailing of the feet to the cross was even a more delicate matter. The soldiers had to make sure that the knees of the condemned man man were bent when they were fastened to the wood. If they weren't bent, then the dying man would not be able to stretch out and get the proper air he needed to breathe and would therefore die very quickly. So Jesus' knees were bent as the soldiers pounded one long spike through both legs. Next, four soldiers hoisted up the cross and dropped it painfully into a large hole. The jolt of the cross falling into the hole would have caused tremendous pain. After just a few minutes on the cross, his entire body ached violently. The nerves in his hands and feet had been shattered. He began to experience swelling around the joints and wounds. Probably infection was already beginning to set in. It was not uncommon for a crucified person to hang on a cross for days before hunger Thirst, pain, fever, exhaustion, those types of things would end his life. But Jesus' scourging and crucifixion were so severe that he died after just six hours. Six hours. Punishment. The other central theme that we need to remember about the Lord's Supper is this idea of price. Price. He was punished because there was a price that had to be paid. You might say there was a price on our head. And he paid the price for the sins of the whole world. Right? 
Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. The wages of sin is death. A payment has to be made. A price has to be paid. Peter puts it this way. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish or without spot. God did not, Jesus said, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. The price. You know, that's the one thing that distinguishes Christianity the one true religion from any other false religion in the world. Every other religion just says, pony up. Do these seven things. Pay this much money. Think about the indulgences in Roman Catholicism. Walk this many miles. Come up to this Mecca. Do this. Do that. Pay the price. And you're in. Christianity rightly recognizes the plight of mankind and says, you can't possibly pay the price. Because the price that God demands is sinless perfection, and we're all born dead in our trespasses and sins. You don't become a sinner the first time you sin. You sin because you're a sinner, and that's what sinners do. We're all under the same predicament. So we need someone who knew no sin, a human being with enough room on their shoulders to pay for the sins of myself and yourself and the whole world. And that person is Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, fully human, lived a perfect, holy, sinless life, tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. So that when he went to the cross, he could pay that price on our behalf. And it is paid for, fully satisfied. The problem is, his death on the cross doesn't mean that every human being automatically goes to heaven. Any more than if I buy you a gift, you automatically get it. You've got to take it when I offer it to you. I can't force you to take it. If I offer you a gift to say, hey, man, I got you this gift. I'd love you to have it. And you say, no thanks. It's still mine, right? It's still in my possession. It's not yours. So the offer of eternal life and forgiveness of sins is universal. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. Whosoever will uh, can be saved. But sadly, many people reject the free gift of the price that was paid on their behalf, and instead they're trying to still pay for it on their own. I mean, can you imagine if getting into heaven was simply a matter of your bank account? There'd be a lot of pretty evil Luciferians that have billions and trillions of dollars that would get in. But that's not the God I serve, and that's not the testimony of Scripture. It's about simple, humble faith, recognizing I'm a sinner who needs a Savior, I am hopeless and helpless apart from Christ, he paid my penalty, and I'm coming to him as the only one who can save me. So I receive from him today the gift of eternal life, faith, faith alone. So that's why the Lord's Supper is so crucial and so critical, because of the punishment and the price. And then the second one I want to talk about today that's a core element of the model church is prayer. Prayer, you know, it was easier to pray as a group the closer you were to the time of Christ. You know, you saw Jesus modeling prayer for three and a half years. 
You saw the first thing the early church did was pray. They, even before the church was founded, they were praying. Um, in the book of Acts, you see repeated references uh, to prayer. Um, I remember the one story, we'll get to it in our study through the book of Acts. Uh, there's so many great stories I can't wait to dive into. But when the church was having a prayer meeting, praying for Peter to be released from prison. God supernaturally releases Peter from prison. He shows up at the house where they're having the prayer meeting, knocks on the door. Someone goes, answers the door, and says, Go away, we're praying for Peter to be released from prison. <laughs> and that's a, if that's not a metaphor for the church today. Um, but it seems like today we simply don't depend on prayer the way the church used to. And I am so humbled and honored and proud in a good way. Um, of Plum Creek Chapel and our emphasis on prayer. Uh, I want to share just two anecdotes from the last couple of months of the Lord's answer to prayer that have really meant uh, the world to me. The first is about a friend of mine who we prayed for as a church. I won't mention his name, but he was on our prayer list, may still be there for a number of times, but a dear friend. Uh, and in fact, I talked to him this week. Spent two hours almost talking with him and just really the fellowship is great but he was he came down with COVID in October right after I was up there preaching at a conference with him and he spent 46 days in the hospital including 18 days on a vent he was supposed to die he was not expected to live he had uh uh, uh, anesthesiologist that worked at the same hospital where he was in ICU that goes to his church that said he would come by and check on him every day and he told him afterwards that you were you were gray you had you had all the signs your color everything it was I, he, I did not expect you to come off the ventilator and yet this church that I've been associated with for 15 or 20 years um, um, my daughter actually lives up there we've got folks that were here in Plum Creek that used to go to that church up in Minnesota, prayed. And in fact, not just that church, but prayers went out throughout the world because that church does a lot of mission work in South America and Africa. And, uh, and they were getting emails from people literally across the globe praying for, for my friend. We prayed for him. I prayed for him. And God wasn't through with him. And miraculously, and it was a true miracle, he came off the vent. But the next, but it didn't stop there. He was still very much on his deathbed, even after 18 days on the ventilator. And for the next two and a half weeks, he was heavily sedated. And he told me the story, this is the new part of the story that I had not heard before, that during that two and a half weeks, he was unmistakably facing demonic oppression that he had every day he was he was basically unconscious but he would in a state of uh, delusion he he would cry out and eventually his wife took up his uh, advocacy and basically begged the doctors to take him off all the medications that they had him on but he said it was the classic example of pharmakeia, the Greek word for sorcery, which is where we get our word pharmacy. But he talked about every day seeing demon present, uh, 
presence in the form of a little uh, man in the corner that was telling him, you're not going to make it. You're never going to get out of here. You're die. The church has forgotten you. They're not praying for you anymore. Um, this demon would be visibly angry with him. He heard, I won't go into all the details. He gave me permission to share, but I told him I wouldn't mention his name. But he heard noises, unbelievable sounds. And, and he could remember it all when he finally came to. Two and a half weeks of that. See, this, this man God is using in a powerful way for the grace message and, and standing firm for truth and has for many years. I knew him before he was even at that church in, in Duluth. Spoke at his church in Milwaukee. Uh, and God wasn't through with him, but Satan wanted to have him. And when he didn't kill him with COVID, he was trying to kill him uh, through other means. Well, he, praise God, he's, he's home and been home for a while and, you know, back in ministry and serving. Um, but he said the interesting thing was he went back and read, because everything in your medical charts is now digital. You can go online to the portals and see it. He went back and read every day of the 46 days of his chart to see the doctor's daily summaries. And he discovered that during that two and a half weeks after he came off the vent, the doctors were giving him, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing this right, but scopoline. And he looked that up, and I kid you not, the colloquial term for that pharmaceutical, the drug, is called devil's breath. It's also known as the date, date rape drug. It's been used for centuries in South America in satanic rituals. But it has allegedly some medicinal purposes, and so that's what they were giving. Are you familiar with scopoline at all? Have you heard that? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is a spiritual battle, but God answered the prayers of his people and was bigger than all of this. And then in a much less serious way, but in a much more personal way, I can tell you when we were under attack as a church with so many people so sick and many of our leadership hospitalized and uh, not doing well, I'm thinking of Fred and Gary, and I know there were others, and Wendy and I were also very sick, probably should have gone to the hospital, but I didn't want to go to the hospital because people die there. And, uh, and my pulse ox was down to 86, so it was Wendy's for two or three days. Uh, and guess what? People prayed. People prayed. It was over Christmas, you remember. And I, we, we felt the presence of the Holy Spirit, the prayers of the people, and, and just slowly climbing back. There were moments when I was worried and thinking, boy, you know, what if? You know, what if I can't ever speak and preach again? What if I can't talk? What if I die? I mean, I wasn't worried about death myself, but I've got six kids, a granddaughter, a wife, a church, and I just wasn't through with my ministry. I mean, I don't mind if the rapture happens today because we'll do that together, but I don't want to die today because I've got work to do. I'm not done. Um, and, and, and yet you prayed. And, and, and I sent out a prayer request through Not By Works Ministry, which goes out to thousands, and I got, I still haven't to this day read all of the responses I got from that prayer request that I sent out to the Not By Works Ministries list. And I, people were probably watching this thing, oh, he didn't read my email. I'm very sorry. I just, there were so many of them. By the time I got well and I was back, you know, catching up from being down and out for two weeks, I just haven't had the time. But the ones I did read, which were many, were so encouraging. And it was always the same. We're praying for you. Our church is praying for you. My family's praying for you. So God answers prayer. And um, 
you know, we see this model here that not only did they continue in this breaking of bread, but in prayers. In prayers. The first recorded instance in Scripture of a group prayer meeting uh, was in the context of a crisis. 500 years before Christ, Daniel, the prophet, got his three friends together and they prayed for the Lord to intervene and help when King Nebuchadnezzar was demanding that they worship the, the image that he had set up. And we read in Daniel, it says, Daniel went into his house, made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven. That was prayer. And uh, so we see lots of examples of prayer going all the way back to Genesis. But this was the first example of a group prayer. And then, of course, in the New Testament, as the church is established and the Spirit of God is inspiring Paul to write letters to the churches, we read that we're to be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. He told the church in Colossae, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. Or to Thessalonians, he wrote, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You see, a shared plight leads to shared prayers. And while I would never want to go through the sickness or watch my friends go through it again, I'm thankful that it brought the church together in prayer. We're all in this together. Um, another passage that's not on the screen that comes to my mind is Ephesians 6, the great spiritual warfare passage, which we've talked a lot about. We're going to get to that again when we go through Acts because there's a lot of spiritual warfare going on in the early days of the church. But remember, it ends in verse 18 with praying always with all prayer and supplication. So yeah, it's a spiritual battle, but it's, it's got to be fought on our knees. With memories of Christ's sacrificial death still very fresh in everyone's mind, the early church prayed regularly together. Prayers of praise and gratitude, faith and direction. Faith and direction. So there's two more. We'll pick up with some more next week, the Lord's Supper and prayer. But what's the takeaway from these two? First of all, come to the Lord's table regularly with reverence and introspection. So we didn't celebrate the Lord's Supper today, but we did in this morning's message talk a lot about Christ's atoning sacrifice and, 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 and put a tangible picture in our minds of what that was like. And then in our 9 o'clock hour, we talked about His return. So we are fulfilling the purpose of the Lord's Supper today. But the next time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, I hope that uh, this message will come back to our minds and we will, with great earnestness, remember to look back and to look forward. And then the second takeaway is just to remember to pray for each other and for our church. Pray for each other and for our church. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for uh, the model that you gave for to us in Acts chapter 2 of the early church and the corresponding timeless truths that we read in the rest of the New Testament that give us more details and instruction on how to function as a church. And Father, uh, we don't want prayer to ever just be something we tag on to the end of a service or quickly say before a meal. We want it to be the heartbeat of our church. And so Lord, we, uh, we confess the times when we don't pray enough and we come before you uh, asking 
uh, for you to just hear our prayers. And, uh, and, and Father, we look to you by faith, trusting that you'll meet our needs. Thank you for this time together, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.